Oh my god. <laughs> What's going on? What's up? Response time on this laptop is absurd. And I think it's because I have all the Restore the Magic stuff on here. Like, literally every single thing. So I'm going to have to, oh, like, man. figure out what the hell is going on with that. Are you nostalgic? A parent? Or perhaps a child at heart? When it comes to children's media, from books to TV shows, and even movies, there's often more than meets the eye. Is it well written? Does it still hold up today? What works and what doesn't? Or maybe you wonder what went on behind the scenes of that work. Together, a trio of adults, who are also kids at heart, will critique and comment on a new piece of children's media each episode. Hello, this is Eric. Hi, I'm PDJ. And I'm Rico. You're listening to Beyond the Lens, a family-friendly podcast. So welcome to a new episode of Beyond the Lens. I know I said we were going to do the Hunchback this week, but technical difficulties and scheduling issues sort of we to skip to the next episode, and so we're doing Thomas and the Magic Railroad this week. Um, I am joined with Eric, and P- PJ unfortunately is unable to join us this week for scheduling reasons. Uh. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. How familiar are you with? Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Um, I've I've had an inkling of information of knowledge on it from time to time over the past twenty years. Um, I've I've recognized the title. There's this this train in it that I'm kind of know who that is. Um, you know, there's no I'm stupid familiar with this movie. I saw this movie in theaters. Um, I got this movie as soon as it came out um, on video cassette because that's how old I am and uh, proceeded to basically have the entire thing memorized to this day because I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much the same thing, except I did not see this movie in theaters. Uh, I. Did have it on VHS tape, though. Specifically an Avon copy. (laughs) Uh, My mom used to sell Avon, so that's how I got that copy. And, yeah, I'm very familiar with the movie. and, And I guess you could say that it's very close to... The original mission of the nonprofit Eric and I run, but we'll discuss more about that later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess you, let's buckle up here and and get into the movie. Uh, so in the past episodes, we talked about how Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends first aired in the UK, and then it was brought to the US. In Shining Time Station. And one thing that I was asked to clarify is that there is a distinction between the Brit Alcroft Company, which is also known as Ghislaine, and that's different from Brit Alcroft, the person. And uh, it was the Brit Alcroft Company that was later sold to Hit Entertainment. This wasn't the case yet for Thomas and the Magic Railroad, but basically Thomas and the Magic Railroad was an attempt to sort of combine Thomas and Shining Time into one unified story. The movie stars Peter Fonda as Burnett Stone, Mara Wilson as Burnett's granddaughter Lily, and then Alec Baldwin as Mr. Conductor. The story I'm about to explain is the film's plot as released, and I'll explain more about this and why it's important later. So the film begins with an introduction to the island of Soda, which is one end of Mr. Conductor's universe. Thomas arrives late to the station, and Gordon is bossy with Thomas. But then we are interrupted 
Suddenly, when a giant diesel with a claw speeds by, and Gordon proclaims that Diesel 10's back. And, and then we're introduced to Shining Time Station, and Shining Time, which is a, the other end of Mr. Conductor's universe, and part of the real, I guess you could say, and human world. And we learn that Mr. Conductor is heading to the Island of Soda to take care of the engines while Sir Topham Hat goes on vacation. And there's also a local boy, Patch, who meets up with Billy, and then later with Burnett Stone, where we're introduced to the steam engine lady. She is a magical steam engine that was crashed years ago following a chase with Diesel 10. Burnett says that he's tried to fix her up, but he can't figure out how to make her steam. And, and then we learn that Diesel 10 is back to find Lady and destroy her for good. It's implied that it's her magic that keeps the steam engines alive, and that if Lady is destroyed, then all other steam engines will be destroyed in the process. And he announces his plan to splatter and dodge, who he routinely calls throughout this movie Splodge, because he doesn't have time to say both names. And Splodge is the one that informs him of Mr. C's pending arrival. And then, uh, then when Mr. Connector arrives and it's his first night on Sodor, Diesel 10 knocks down the wall at Tidmouth Sheds and confronts Mr. Conductor. He then tries to escape but realizes he has run out of gold dust, which is the magic dust that enables him to travel from place to place. And then he proceeds to threaten Diesel 10 with throwing sugar into his tank. This prompts Diesel 10 to go away. And as the conductor goes back to sleep, he mentions buffers in his sleep, and Percy overhears, and then he proceeds to have a nightmare of what will happen to Shining Time Station if he can't find more gold dust. And then that leads us up to Lily, who is Burnett Stone's granddaughter, who then goes to take a trip to visit Burnett on Muffle Mountain. A local dog named Mutt puts her on the wrong train, a train bound for Shining Time for the right reasons. And Mr. Conductor attempts to locate the windmill because that's where the clue for how to make more gold dust is located but he can't find the windmill. And so, as he is lost and has no more gold dust, uh, this next scene is sometimes joked as the moment where Alec Baldwin becomes insane for the first time, because a rabbit gives him carrots and celery, which he then eats and says random words, one of the words being beach, it then makes him think of his cousin Junior, who is a beach bum and is much of the film's comic relief. And, and so he calls him up on Bellflowers, which is like a telephone made of flowers. And he finds out that he's low on Goldust too, so Mr. Conductor instructs Junior to, to find his emergency supply of gold dust in Shining Time Station. And that's when Lily arrives to Shining Time and crosses paths with and meets Junior for the first time. Eventually, Stacy Jones, the station manager, finds her and takes her back to Burnett Stone on Muffle Mountain. And then later that night, Thomas and Percy speculate that Mr. Conductor travels from Shining Time to Sodor via a magic railroad. Diesel 10 overhears the speculation, and Toby intervenes as D Diesel 10 announces his plans to find and destroy the buffers that lead to the magic railroad. And then Toby distracts him with his bell, and this prompts Diesel 10 to knock over the roof with his pinchy which is his claw, his name for the claw. Uh, and then 
next day, Henry is in need of special coal. Thomas fetches six trucks of this special coal, but one of the trucks isn't coupled properly, glides to an old set of buffers where it magically disappears. Percy and Thomas later deduce that these buffers are the entrance to the Magic Railroad. Thomas instructs Percy to guard the buffers from Diesel 10, while Thomas goes to look for Mr. Conductor. And that's when we cut to Mr. Conductor walking along the line looking for Thomas, only to discover Diesel 10 approaching him, who then grabs Mr. Conductor with his claw and digs him over a crumbling vi viaduct. Eventually, Mr. Conductor pulls out pliers and cuts one of Pinchy's hydraulic line. This causes Diesel 10's claw to fling him to the base of the windmill. And then a moment that breaks the fourth wall, Mr. Conductor thanks the audience for putting a sack of grain at the bottom of the windmill that sort of softened his landing. And there he learns the clue for the gold dust, which is stoke up the magic in the mountain and the lady will smile, then watch the swirls that spin so well. But then the clue disappears afterwards and he can't get to it anymore. Uh, so then Lily then meets Pat for the first time, who then takes her back to Shining Time Station on horseback. Lily then meets up with Junior again, who then proceeds to take her onto the Magic Railroad and onto the island of Sodor. Junior lets Lily take some of the gold dust, but holds onto it for safekeeping. And on their trip on the Magic Railroad, Junior mentions that there's a lost engine that traveled on the Magic Railroad. And so, when they arrive on Soda, Lily ends up meeting Thomas, who is astonished that train engines can talk. Um, and so, Lily, Thomas, and Junior all head over to the windmill and find Mr. Conductor. And so, Mr. Conductor is not exactly happy that. Junior is running late, but he announces that he discovered the clue, only then to realize he forgot part of the clue. So that's when Junior decides to uh, take a ride on the windmill. And after that, the wind picks up and he's flung off of the windmill and lands on top of the back of Diesel 10. Uh, and so... Now that he's his captive, we cut back to Muffle Mountain where Patch arrives to tell Burnett Stone that he can't find Lily back at Shining Time Station because obviously she's on Sodor. Uh, and Burnett Stone is like, don't worry, we're going to find her. And so then Percy then goes on to discover that Splatter and Dodge has discovered the location of the magic buffers, and so then he goes to warn Thomas, where Lily is discussing with Thomas and Mr. Conductor about the lost engine, Magic Railroad, and the possibility of Burnett visiting the island of Soda long ago. And it's at this that Mr. Conductor remembers more of the clue, but not all of it. Percy arrives and warns Thomas and Mr. Conductor about the magic railroad being in danger, and Mr. C resolves that the only way without gold to travel on the railroad is, is to take a ride in the lost engine, but then he realizes that Thomas may be able to do the journey, and Thomas is reluctant at first, but he eventually he agrees. Uh, Thomas then takes Silly uh, through the buffers and back onto the magic railroad. He rediscovers a missing coal truck from earlier, and Thomas goes back to couple up to it, and he takes that and Lily back onto Muffle Mountain, where suddenly a huge gush of wind knocks Thomas, but not the coal truck, down the mountain and into another magic world portal. And while that's happening, Lily reunites with Patch and takes Lily to Burnett's workshop, and when Lily and Burnett reunite at, in the workshop, Lily confesses everything that's going on on Sodor. Then Burnett looks up at, at Lady, 
And then Lily realizes that Lady is the lost dungeon. And Burnett confesses that he doesn't know how to make her steam. It's Lily that then resolves that special coal from the island of Sodor is what Lady needs to get going again. And Patch agrees to go and retrieve the coal truck. Junior and Diesel Tent arrive in the smelters and then is flung on top of James. And then that's when Junior realizes that he has run out of gold dust. Diesel 10 is about to strike until Junior remembers the gold dust he saved for Lily. And so he uses that to disappear with James. And they arrive back at back at the wishing well where Mr. Conductor is. And then it's at that moment that we cut back to Burnett taking the special coal. And then Lady starts to steam and is taken onto the Magic Railroad where there's magical and multicolored shavings that appear behind Lady. And, and so that brings the Magic Railroad's energy back and then Lady regains her face. And Th Thomas then meets up with them all and they all arrive back on Sodor. And then that's when Diesel 10 comes comes back and realizes that Thomas is with Lady and instructs Splatter and Dodge to to come and destroy Lady with with him. But Splatter and Dodge betray Diesel 10 and insists that he destroy Lady himself. And so Burnett then jumps into Lady and Lady and Thomas attempt to outrace Diesel 10, arriving on on the same crumbling viaduct Mr. Conductor was on earlier. But then, as Lady crosses the viaduct safely, a hole opens behind Lady and ahead of Thomas, who then goes on to bravely jump the gap. But then, the rest of the viaduct collapses, and Diesel 10 falls down and lands in a barge trailed with sludge. And then Mr. Conductor remembers the rest of the clue on how to make more gold dust. They figure out that they have to mix the shavings from the Magic Railroad with water from the Wishing Well. And, and then once that's mixed, Lily throws it up in the air and gold dust is formed. And so Junior gives some other gold dust back to Lily. And then Junior tells Mr. Conductor that he's ready to work and not just go back to the beach. And that's when Mr. Conductor gives him his cap for for being Mr. Conductor. And that's when Mr. Conductor learns that the top of him hat is coming back and goes to meet him. Then Lily gives the gold dust to Burnett, who says they should share it between each other to remember their shining time together and puts it in the least toy bluebird that was seen throughout the movie. And with that, uh, the movie ends with Shining Time scene still intact and Thomas riding off into the sunset. Hey guys, did that plot sound like a bit of a mess? Because it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> a mess. Yeah, when I was writing out these notes, uh, there were several times that I actually had to go back to an earlier point to write something else or make sense later as I was because reading it, it Yeah, because <laughs> it's like there's so much happening and mm -hmm. it's like you need those previous points for the next one to make sense and it mm -hmm. just gets so convoluted because of, you know, the editing process that we'll be talking about shortly. Mm -hmm. But like, oh my God, even watching this as a kid, I was like, uh, okay, I'm just going to kind of blasely watch this thing. <laughs> see what happens. Uh, that brings up one of the questions I have written down. What did you think of the movie as a kid, and has that opinion changed uh, as you grew up with it? I mean, I enjoyed it as a kid. Um, what happened when I first saw this in theaters? I was, um, we went with my mom and grandmother to a movie theater that was doing like a special, like Saturday morning event, um, and we went. <laughs> we went to that movie theater to do all the free special event stuff. And then my dad took us to a different movie theater later in the day because the other movie theater was cheaper. So <laughs> this is, this is my family. So we went and <laughs> so 
they did like face painting and like snacks and like different craft things. And it was super cheese volley and cute and whatever. So but there were there were like a ton of kids there. And they got one of the employees to dress up as Mr. Conductor. And he was walking down. He's like, I'm Mr. Conductor. And my brother and I both looked at each other and we're like, that's not Mr. Conductor. (laughs) We were super, we were super polite when he came up to us and we held our end of the conversation. It's almost like when you go to a theme park and meet like a character and you're like, that's not really Bugs Bunny or whatever, whatever it is. But like, also you're going to keep up that, like that thought process of like, I'm going to pretend. So all these kids were coming up and like, oh my god, I'm so shy. Da, 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 da. And he comes up to us like, are you excited for this movie? And it's like, it's about time this train got a movie. I was super judgmental as a kid as, as well as I am as an adult. So like, it just never went away. So, um, so yeah, he came up and we played this game. And I turned to my mom after he walked away and she goes, oh, he was very nice. I said, yeah, but he was fake. <laughs> so we went inside and we did all the, the face painting and stuff. Um, and it was you know what's awkward and this has nothing to do with the movie um you know what's awkward is the fact that uh face painting trains uh either i have seen pictures of where they do the entire train face over your entire face which is super awkward and then there's ones where they like do a blue box and paint a circle and smiley face and a number one and they caught that's basically what we got and i was like this is a mess also my brother because of the posters and the trailers and it was you know shining Kemp station to come back on nick jr at that point to help like push the release of the film mm-hmm. and like so the commercials were playing and my brother went up and was like can i get everyone wanted thomas and my brother goes can i get diesel 10 they're like i don't know who that is and i was like bitch he's on the poster he's right there <laughs> it's, it's a big great big brown box with a giant claw like oh my god like you are literally at this premiere of this film. Anyway, <laughs> we went to the movie later. Um, I enjoyed every second of it because I it's Thomas and I was going to enjoy every second of it. And I was kind of like, whatever. I didn't really question the choppiness of the film. Um, and, you know, as an adult, it, is it, it's okay. So there's a, there's a YouTube channel that I've, I've found and this guy just, reviews of movies and other things and his scale is positive or negative numbers and uh, the positive numbers are like actual enjoyment of the film and if it's like a 10 on the positive side it's an absolutely amazing film and he goes on the flip of the other side if it's a negative 10 that means that the film was terrible but it had ironic enjoyment i feel like thomas and the magic railroad is like a negative eight like it's (laughs) not a it's a it's a okay film but it has like it still has entertainment value to it um so i can still watch it and be like oh that's a cute movie but i also wouldn't say it's the best movie in the world as an adult (laughs) for me uh when i first watched the movie like i guess like you mentioned how shining time station we aired on nick jr and and I remember uh, watching it, and I was confused, like, why is that guy Billy? That's not the same Billy, and it's not the same Mr. Conductor, and all this stuff. That threw me off a little bit. But It's funny, because that didn't bother me so much. I was just kind of like, whatever. Like, uh, people get replaced all the time. What I mean, it was like the same stuff between season one and season two of Shining Temptation, where we just added new characters and, like, gave barely any explanation. And it was just kind of like, oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> well, well, that's different because they were, were different, different kids, yeah, different yeah. kids with different names. It wasn't, I mean, with the exception of Mr. Conductor, there wasn't like, um, like they hired someone else to play Harry the again. The same character, yeah, yeah, you're right. And so, uh, that th- threw me off, and... I did find the movie hard to follow a little bit at at that age, but then as I grew up a little bit, and I want to say I was like nine or ten when I came back to this movie, uh, and I and I watched it, and I, I must have been my favorite movie at that age for whatever reason, because. <laughs> As uh, there were 
literally not be one Saturday morning where I would not find that tape and watch it again. And so I thoroughly enjoyed the movie then. Uh, and as I grow up now, uh, sort of like you said, there's there are parts that are enjoyable, but it's definitely not like the best movie of all time. One thing that I will say that is generally praised throughout at least the Thomas fandom uh, is the music and the score that was in in the film. 100%. This is one of the best scores and the best soundtracks for any movie I've ever watched. It's very, uh, for the most part, it's very almost meditational. It's... Mm very calming obviously you know where where it needs to pick up it picks up and it gets very dramatic and like oh no what's gonna happen but also i I feel like a majority of the score is just i listen to it and i'm just like oh this is just so nice this is so wonderful and it gives you that vibe of the shining time where it's like this place doesn't actually exist but like Mm -hmm. you hear that music and you're like yes this is the tone of what i want this it matches the tone of the tv series Mm -hmm. like it, it works beautifully yeah, and I and I also will say that uh, that the score that was at least the tracks that were released on the soundtrack, the score written by Honey Man is actually one of the reasons why like my one of my favorite uh, instrumental music genres is film score music or TV mm-hmm. score music, and so that so that's a testament to that. Um, let's talk briefly about the character performances that as, as they mm-hmm. appear in the final cut, um, mm-hmm. because there is controversy on Alec Baldwin's portrayal of Mr. Conductor because uh, he's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's it's so funny because the, and I know which you know which video I'm talking about. So Nostalgia Critic goes mm-hmm. through and talks about this film, and it's like it's so true what he says when he talks about there are different. All the different actors, it feels like they're all acting in completely different movies. Alec Baldwin Mm. is insane during this movie, bouncing Mm. off the walls. And Peter Fonda is super depressed the entire time. And I know we're going to get into this. And the, the, the issue with that being like all of that depression stuff came out towards the end of the film originally. And then they spread it out throughout the movie. So it just looks like he just mopes the entire time, which (laughs) is not true. Mm. And you have Mara Wilson, who's just kind of like lost in the mix. And then you have, you know, and you're trying to keep that Shining Time Station stuff alive, and then those characters basically disappear into the distance and get no plot development at mm-hmm. all. And they're just kind of like, hey, we're here. So it's <laughs> like, but they, it, but everyone puts so, it, it, it commits so hard to these roles. Mm-hmm. And they just, ah, oh, it makes me so upset that they, that it just doesn't, they all don't click together. I. Uh... Uh, I would agree. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if you read this, but I listened to the audiobook of Mara Wilson's uh, memoir. It's so good. It's, it's, she's such a good writer. Yeah, and and I and that I guess knowing what she was going through around the time of the making of this movie, I can sort of see why she would get lost a little bit. In her role, but like you said, with Alec Baldwin and Peter Fonda, like they're completely different polar opposites, at least with regards to the final film. Uh, Bruno Stone is like, like this adult, very drama-driven story, and then we have Alec Baldwin who's like in this children's comedy, and it, it's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, it was trying to be three different things. It was funny because Katie and I watched the new Peach Dragon, and we got about three-fourths of the way through, and I was like, I'm not going to like this movie. I don't want to watch a remake of this Disney movie, and it's going to be completely different. But because it was so different, I enjoyed it just as much as the original Peach Dragon. But Katie made a very valid statement, which was, this is the tone that Magic Railroad was trying to go for and missed completely. And I said, yes this like family adventure with like 
heartfelt drama and everything. Like, this is what it was trying to go for. And then missed. And I can't exactly pinpoint where it missed it. Uh, yeah, I'm not entirely familiar with Pete's Dragon, so I wouldn't uh, know all that much about it. But, like, the sort of movies that uh, I'm not... I'm not sure how you would feel if I was to compare it with the direction that uh, Bill Alcroft wanted to go with this movie. I'd I would say something like, say, The Secret of Men. Yes, yes, yeah. something like that. I mean, obviously, you you want to have your quirky comedic moments. Right. That's totally fine, but they they can't be juxtaposed so dramatically with the other tones of the movie. And I think that's where it got lost. Also, breaking the fourth wall was just, oof, oof, don't do that, please. Please yeah, stop. And the nostalgia could it make a good point. Like, the idea is that it's like this interactive element that was teased early on in the movie, and and it's, and if it's trying to be Blue's Clues, and that, it's, it's not like, uh, like, Dora. Dad, like, just see it happen, and then it's like, oh, it's you that did this. Well, and it just, it doesn't, that doesn't happen in the TV series. So that also was very bizarre to like have that happen in the film. And I was like, oh, this, this is not what happens on the TV. Okay. It doesn't happen on Shining Time either, though. It doesn't happen on Shining Time. It doesn't happen on Thomas. So like, why is it happening? Why now? Why this movie? Uh, Even, even sidetracking for a bit with Big World Big Adventures, like they don't even have anything close to that either like they talks to the audience but it's not like in that same sense yeah until it gets to like the very end of the episode where they do those wrap-ups it's the only time and that makes sense because that is literally set up to talk outside of the episode and the plot Mm -hmm. of the story so like that makes complete sense Mm -hmm. there's no reason yeah Ugh. ugh fourth wall breaking and so I think we can now go into uh, yes. the changes that were made. And these changes were initially discovered when Jim Groton from Soder Island Forms discovered the original script for the film in February 2007. And that was the May 1999 script. And in that script, there, there were some differences between the later draft that we later came across and, and, and that there was absent uh, characters from Soda, namely Cranky and George. Cranky in the script had a minor non-speaking role where George had a major role as one, one of Dieselton's henchmen. And Cranky's only appearances are in the Friendship song and then later on when they... I think it's dropping fruit on Splatter and Dodge, and that's in the same speech where they asked Dieselton why he let Mr. Conductor escape. Um, and then another thing that's different in that script is that Dieselton apparently sneaks back and hears Mr. Conductor mention the buffers in his sleep. And that's what prompts him to instruct George to destroy all the buffers on the island in exchange. He will destroy Tidmistas and turn it into George's own personal roller rink. And that has a daydream sequence somewhere in there. And eventually, George starts to have second thoughts about this. And then, at the end, Diesel 10 instructs George to destroy a set of buffers are the actual magic buffers, and George ends up betraying Dieselton in, in this version, asking him to smash the buffers himself. And so then Splatter and Dodge are then instructed to do so, but but when they attempt, they end up getting derailed, and and it's and then and that's the next scene is where. Liddy comes back to life and is returns to the island of Sodor. And like I said, these details and characters were written out in a, a later draft, which was dated August 1999, and 
fun fact that that August script was actually completed uh, on my birthday. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, but the rest of the changes were then made during an audience, a test audience screening uh, during post-production. Uh, there, there were uh, voice cast changes. Uh, John Bellis as Thomas, who was cut because he made Thomas sound too old, and that's the same reason why the original UK narrator, Michael Angelus, was cut as Percy and James. Uh, and then Keith Scott was originally cast as Diesel 10, and then, then he was cut because it, his voice sounded too scary. And then Neil Crone later went on to voice Diesel 10, and then he, he was forced to change his original accent because he originally uh, voiced it in a Russian accent, uh, and they feared that the voice would be perceived as politically incorrect. Uh, and then it's Patrick Bean, I think is his name, who was the only other voice original voice cast member who was then cut for unknown reasons. But then we get to the main change that everyone seems to talk about, and that is the original human antagonist, P.T. Boomer. Um, Diesel 10 was originally supposed to be a new engine arriving on Sodor and uh, was a secondary antagonist to Boomer. Uh, Boomer was the main antagonist. Uh, P.T. Boomer was portrayed by the late Doug Lennox. Uh, he is described in the script as a drifter through choice and not circumstance. Uh, and his backstory is that Boomer was jealous of Brennett's relationship with his wife, Tasha. Um, and we learned that uh, something I didn't mention before Tasha and, and ended up dying before the events of this movie. But, but anyway, Boomer did not believe in magic and instead put his faith in money. And he crashed Lady as an act of revenge. Uh, he returns uh, 40 years later, and he's a dark and bitter character who's determined to find Lady and destroy her for good. Uh, and uh, he's... And Boomer is the reason behind Mutt's ease throughout the movie, and it's also the reason why Mutt led the lead to Shining Time instead of Muffle Mountain. Throughout the movie... He spends most of his time either confronting Billy Two Feathers or Burnett Stone, and as well as digging into Muffle Mountain looking for Lady. Eventually, he resolves to blow up Muffle Mountain, and he begins to do so when Thomas arrives with Billy. Uh, the explosion knocks Thomas down the mountain instead of the gush of wind, uh, and when Boomer sees him, he dismisses him as just a giant blue toy, but then he follows, he then follows, and that's where he rides on the Magic Railroad, and then eventually he ends up on the back of Diesel 10 during the climactic change scene, and he shares the same fate as Diesel 10. Uh, and one thing I was just to note is when I first read the script is that there are a lot more human scenes that were cut due to references to P.T. Boomer other than the scenes that directly feature him. Um, and as far as why all these changes and cuts happen, like I said, it was a poor test audience screening. Uh, it was discovered the kids in the audience really understood and was invested in the model train action, but didn't understand and got bored with the human action as well as deeming P.T. Boomer too scary, and so the studio forced Brett to uh, make all these changes against her wishes at the last minute. 
And so she rewrote Diesel 10 as the main villain and assumed some of Boomer's role as a result. And that required the magic element to be added to Sodor, and that sort of contradicted the, the vision of Sodor portrayed in the Railway series, which is the original book series that Thomas was based on. Uh, and there are many other criticisms that were made to the final film, some of which we talked about already, that, that in this unreleased version of the film, uh, these criticisms just aren't, aren't the case as much anymore. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting, too, is they, once you start to figure out where the plot points are, those missing pieces, it's like, oh, this entire scene or this entire movie makes way more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it was, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, Nelson Ferriera or something like that. He was the... He was a supervising sound editor as well as the ADR editor for the movie, and he was interviewed by Seth, and uh, they, and he's he's told them that that not only were the the changes were unprecedented, it was also the case that that it was like if you looked at the script and looked at the movie that came out as a result. We think that they that they that these were totally different movies. Yeah, yeah, because they they do feel like completely different movies. As you can see, it was Britt and her creative team that worked hard to make her vision a re- reality, but executive meddlings sort of ruined its potential. And so, this is a question that uh, I'd like to ask. Uh, was there a time in your life where you worked really hard on something only for things to not go as you planned them? <laughs> a lot of sarcasm in that statement, <laughs> sir. Um, let's talk. Is this, a, is this a transition statement? Um, I mean, I will. I'll say it. I'll, I'll talk about Carrie. Um, so in 2016, mm-hmm. um, our nonprofit to carry the musical. It was a show that never it gets done the rights have been released a couple years before it's a very touchy subject because it's known as the biggest broadway flop in history up until spider-man um (laughs) and it ran five days officially in new york and then closed and nothing was to come of it there's a whole giant backstory behind that which i will get into at some point at in, in life um but we did the show Three weeks before the show, we were supposed to record the um, the metal band that we booked to do the recordings for everything. We were doing it in an old church that had been converted into a black box theater, so we couldn't have a live orchestra. So we said, well, let's get somebody to record. Well, three weeks before the show, as we were getting ready to like record everyone, uh, they said, oh, we have a record deal, so good luck, and then left. So we had to digitally input each instrument, note by note, for the entire two-hour, 15-minute show by hand. It was a mess. Then, a week later, two weeks before the show, both our male and female lead quit and just walked out. They didn't think that people were going to get their emotional investment out of the show and that the show was going to be trash. This is also the same person that said, why aren't we rehearsing with the set? First of all, nobody rehearses with a full set until they get into a theater. And second of all, our set was table and chairs. For Carrie and her mom, we had chairs we were rehearsing with. You don't need the type. Anyway, that was a whole big mess. So I had to jump in as the male lead, as well as co-directing and choreographing and doing the projection effects and doing the costume design with Katie. And it was and and doing the orchestra. Um, And then we had another. Thank God we had the most wonderful understudy for Carrie, and she was even better than the original. She did a phenomenal job, and oh my God, it was great. And we literally pulled that show together in two weeks. And the first weekend was rough. It was. It was. It wasn't terrible, but it was. You know when you have a vision for something and then it 
you look at it and you go, this is not what I wanted. Let's fix this. That was kind of what we did between the first and the second weekend. The second weekend went phenomenally. Um, everything went really well. It still wasn't what we wanted it to be, but for what we, the fact that we got through the nonsense that was that production process was just incredible. So like, it's on my list to do Carrie again because of the fact that it's like, you know, there were things that we learned from that that we've applied to all of our other projects that we've done in the future, but also like there's so much more that I want to do with it. And now that I have that knowledge, I know what I want to be able to do to fix it. So that's my, that's one of my stories of like, things didn't really turn out the way I wanted, but we still plowed through anyway. There was a project in, in school for my freshman, uh, science class uh and we had to essentially uh create a a visual demonstration of newton's three laws of motion mm-hmm. and being the person i am and i'm sure you can relate to this i i wanted to do something that that was uh let's just say a little bigger than necessary i I wanted to uh, essentially create like a 10 minute short film uh, in which uh, was demonstrated using the three laws. The, the, the plot of the movie was, I guess, sort of stupid. It was just that someone got in trouble uh, in class playing with a ball. And so for punishment, he had to write a paper demonstrating Newton's three laws of motion using only balls. And so he and so he calls uh, a magic homework help hotline. Literally, he gets pulled through the phone and learns exactly what Newton's three laws of motion are, sort of in a magic school bus sort of style uh, way. And, and so I had written the script and because it took a lot longer to write the script out than than I originally thought, I literally had one weekend to to shoot the entire film. And, and needless to say that that film never got a single bit recorded because I couldn't get enough people in time to get the roles and so roles filled and so as a result of that I I ended up just turning in this the script and I explained like I wanted to produce this film but it just didn't work out but I have the script and I still ended up getting an A on it because you could see in the script that I understood the Newton's three laws of motion and she could tell I could visualize like how they how it worked and stuff, so I still ended up getting an A on it, but that I guess you could say is another example of something that I worked on and it didn't go to plan I mean yeah that'll that'll do it mm-hmm. before we move on, do you have anything to say as it as it relates to uh the changes? I think this was my first eye-opening experience to how much executive producers and people that think they know what they're doing meddle in the creative process and then ruin that creative process. My next example of this that I want to know the full story of is Brave. Because Brave, when I watch it, it feels like it's like five different movies shoved together. And I was like, this is super awkward. And then I found out that the production of that movie was a god-awful mess. And it basically was four or five different versions of a script shoved together, which is why I was like, this movie makes me feel uncomfortable all the way through because I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. And I feel like that's basically the same thing with Magic Railroad. Is like, you, you see what happens when executives come in and completely meddle with the creative process 
the original movie may have been, may not have been very good. It may have been wonderful, but we really don't know that because of what happens when corporate heads come in and start to go, oh, I think it should be like this, or, nah, I don't really like this character, let's get it out. And because they're the ones that are, like, quote-unquote, in charge and funding the film, like, you have to obey them, but, like, you know, and then there's that creative, the creative issues with, like, Barry London, like, leaving the process earlier on and all this stuff, so it's, like, how would this movie have turned out if everything had actually lined up the way it needed to? Um... So that's that's what I've learned from this movie more than anything is like, you know, yes, there needs to be a balance of like, don't let the creative people get too out of control because their vision will be lost. But also don't ruin that person's person's vision and process or else you're going to get a crappy movie, which is kind of what happened with this is, you know, they came in and they said, we're going to do it our way. And then it made it worse. Yeah. Because it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, one of the more ironic things that comes out of what you said uh, is, uh, is, and I've said this before in different places, uh, is that to me, a message or thing that I got out of the script for the original movie uh, was not to lose your like, childlike sense of wonder or imagination. And, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's personified through uh, Bernard Stone's journey back to to happiness, and and as well as sort of the antagonist in P.T. Boomer, which sort of goes the opposite of that, uh, is that he doesn't believe in magic and only believes in money, and if you want to get an idea of what I'm trying to get at, it's best said by one of the lines from Burnett Stone in the original script. This is something along the lines of, Boomer has no sense of of character imagination. He believes in making money instead of making sense. And like that pretty much also sums up the mentality of some of the... Uh, some of the logic when it comes to executive meddling, like, uh, like don't just uh, change it because you think it's going to make more money. Yeah. A-, a good movie will make money if it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. And that's where it kind of comes down to. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I will say is that Brit uh, Alcoff, the writer and director of this film, remains passionate for uh, getting the film released as she had intended it, and uh, one of the nonprofits that Eric and I run, Restore the Magic, uh, we have a petition set up for this cause, uh, and you can find out more information as far as that goes at our website, RestoreTheMagic.org. But uh, one question I wanted to ask you is. What is the cause that you're passionate about? I'm passionate about uh, my uh, my third nonprofit, which is Nap Times for Eric. Um, <laughs> it's uh, if you would like to fund Eric's nap time schedule, that would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> it is tax deductible. It's not really tax deductible because it's not real. Um, <laughs> oh God. Um, well, recently, as within the last couple weeks, actually, um, I am a huge fan of author William Joyce. And he, on the kind of the same level as Restore the Magic, um, he is the he's an author. He write he wrote the book series that the movie Rise of the Guardians is based off of, mm-hmm. and which didn't do too well in theaters. But it is one of my favorite movies. It's so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one with Jack Frost and Santa and the Easter Bunny and Tooth Fairy and Sandman mm-hmm. and all that. Um, So he just released the Jack Frost chapter book a few months ago and he said, oh, you know, send me your pictures of Jack, you as Jack and, you know, I'll do a couple prints and I'll sign them and whatever and I'll pick the best ones. Well, the response was so overwhelming that DreamWorks Animation was like, oh, this is still this, this, what? People want this? Well, maybe we'll make a TV series. So William Joyce is like, 
make this happen. Make it because it was supposed to have sequels, movies. It was supposed to have a live arena tour, and then it canceled everything when the movie did bad. So DreamWorks is dumb and like, <laughs> decided to just continue to make Shrek movies until the end of time because we're doing another one. Um, <sighs> and I'm like, guys, you made such a beautiful movie. Like, why not do something more with this? I think this would be something that actually has plots to develop, unlike Boss Baby. Like, who cares? Who cares about Boss Baby? Give me something adventure, more adventurous with these kids and these, like, you know, guardians of childhood characters. So anyways, so that's something that I'm super passionate about is just pushing things until they get done. Um, <laughs> because that's basically what we're doing with Restore the Magic. That's what I'm going to continue to do with Rise of the Guardians. There's a bajillion other things I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about Hipster Mickey. There is a line of art prints that are Mickey and Minnie in their hipster form, and they are wonderful. And I'm, like, one of the, like, three people that likes it. And they just s- decided to discontinue the line and not do anything more with it. So now I'm all d- emo and depressed and upset about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's I'm passionate about music, passionate about musicals, passionate about reading, passionate about uh, nap time. I'm going to keep going <laughs> with that theme. Um <sighs> I've got a lot of things, a lot of things, and I don't know which one to focus on the most. Nap time should be the one I focus on the most. Uh, <laughs> what about you? For me, uh, I guess the two causes that come to mind are uh, suicide awareness and prevention. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because there has been a pastime in my life where where I was suicidal, and now I'm, like, I'm much better now. I'm in a much better place. And I don't want to wish that on anyone, feeling feeling that low. And, and so I'm passionate about that cause. And then another cause that I'm passionate about, but I think is t- talked about uh, very little, is is uh, copyright reform. And mm-hmm. uh, where basically it's come to the point where corporations are, are literally abusing systems like the DMCA to take down content that's clearly fair use and, and sometimes, like on YouTube with Content ID, like, Sometimes they're not even legitimate copyright claims. Like, I was just seeing a tweet earlier today where a person uploaded three videos, and each video was 10 hours long that was of d- different color noise. Like, there was white noise, pink noise, and I think one was brown noise. Uh, two of the videos got content ID claims, and another one actually was and taken on for a while for a community guidelines reason for repetitious content that uh, he reviewed and it's sent back up but as far as the copyright ideas go and especially now with uh, article 13 getting closer to becoming law in the European Union like this so many different things that can happen and go wrong just because some of these legacy industries just want like copyright to the max just so that they can get as much money from their work as possible. It's irritating, I know. Mm -hmm. So there's that. See, you went way more in a serious route, and I was like, yeah, I like this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Way more serious than I was anticipating. Um, You know, there's there's variety. That's good. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, especially with After Pulse happening, like, everyone in Orlando has been, like, super involved with building up this community and being, you know, a unit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, gun control laws and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff too. I know it's a, that's, that is a super, super touchy subject. And it's like, well, the, this, this is, this is the problem that I also had. This is a very side note, but, you know, talking about like people making roles or being in charge of things, 
we talk about like, you know, uh, uh, the various places I've worked, somebody has to get, you know, we will tell people like, hey, this is a problem that needs to get fixed. They're like, yeah, 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 that's fine. This is a problem that needs to get fixed. Hey, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And somebody has to get hurt at work for them to go, oh, maybe we should fix this. And it's like, yes, that is exactly what we've been saying literally mm. this entire time. Can you do it now? Can you please, please do it? So I feel like it's kind of the same way with a lot of these laws. It's like we, we are telling people about things and saying this is a problem. But even sometimes when people get hurt, it still is like completely ignored. And I'm like, guys, let's mm-hmm. let's let's stop and think about this. And it's the same thing with like these copyright laws, like you were saying, like it's just mm-hmm. a, it's so much control over everything. And it's like, yes, there needs to be some control, but also you need to let people have their creative freedom that's part mm-hmm. of that's a that's a lot of this issues with with the entertainment industry as a whole is like there's a lot of creative holding on there's like a giant claw holding on to like the creativity of people mm-hmm. and it's like please just let them have their energy mm-hmm. but maybe in the future we will see things fixed god only knows yeah and so i guess the to bring things back to Thomas and the Magic Road, are there any final thoughts? Um, I'll be interested to see what happens with Restore the Magic and its mission to release Thomas and the Magic Railroad, the Lost Edition. We will see what happens with that. Please sign our petition. Um, because Mattel is interested in speaking with us because we have organized things and we are professionals and we know how to talk to businesses. Unlike other people that think that they know what they're doing and they think that they're in charge and they think they know how to run a petition and they don't. Um, <laughs> not bitter. I had my serving of vinegar tonight. Um, I think it's a very, it's a very, it's a, what is what am I, what, what is it? What is the magic road? It's, it's a pinpoint in the hit in the franchise's history. It's, you bring up Magic Railroad and you know exactly where in the timeline of the franchise history it is. It's right at the end of where it's, you know, involvement in the series and the franchise. It's the only worldwide theatrical release film. Like, we've had limited releases of things here and there in the past. The UK usually gets, like, their annual specials released for, like, a weekend in theaters. Um but we haven't had a worldwide release, so that's an important thing to remember with this movie. I think it's a bit of a mess, but everyone seems to, regardless of if you love it or hate it, everyone appreciates it and can give their opinion. Well, most people can form their opinions on it. Apparently, I can't tonight. Um, <laughs> but I can also pinpoint like what I enjoy about it, what I dislike about it, what I think would and could be improved with a full release of the the deleted content and kind of connecting all those plot points and everything. It's a, it's a guilty pleasure movie for a lot of people. Um, I appreciate that it's it's still in the public knowledge and people Mm -hmm. still talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's about it for me for this movie. (laughs) Thomas is in it. Kind of Thomas is kind of in this movie. Uh, well, that's another point that nostalgia critic makes is that, is that this movie, for being a Thomas the Tank Engine movie, barely features Thomas the Tank Engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, I, I'm actually, I actually have to say that if it wasn't for this movie and me learning about the changes, I'd probably... Uh, wouldn't have become a Thomas fan, and at least in this far into my adult life, because uh, because as I mentioned somewhere on a post, Hans sort of informs uh, that that basically as I started talking to more people on there about different subjects as it relates to Thomas, I, I, it, it sort of was a case where Sif turned me into a Thomas man instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. And you still need to give huge kudos to Britt Alcroft, because if it wasn't for her, 
And chances are Thomas wouldn't be as big today. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it wouldn't be as big today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Lens. Uh, Hopefully you can join all three of us next time, which we really will talk about the hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe. (laughs) We should. We should. We should be a we should be a hunchback next time. Yeah. And so until next time, this has been a journey beyond the lens. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Lens. The intro music is Work. That's W E R Q by Kevin McCobb. It is available under a Creative Commons attribution license and can be downloaded for free at Incompetech.com. Beyond the Lens is a ReCore Entertainment production. And believe me when I say P.T. Boomer the Cut Villain has nothing on Frollo like compared to anything at all. Like, if Frollo yeah. is in a G-rated movie, there's no reason why P.T. Boomer couldn't have been in a G-rated movie. Just saying. Yeah. Yep. Yep.